Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Greetings. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson. It is a free-for-all today on the phones, 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be a part of this program, I have had a topic, and it's it's almost evergreen because it's been going on now for a while. And I'm glad I, I just because of all the other stuff that's happened this week, haven't been able to get to it till now because there is relevant news. I want to talk about this. You can call in about other things as you want. And if you're on the phone, be patient with me. I will get to you. But literally, I have had on my stack of stuff to talk about all week this topic, and it has finally arrived. I want to begin with this audio. This is from Ron DeSantis. He was with Tucker Carlson the other day. And he is encouraging laws and regulations in Florida that would stop the People's Republic of China from buying land in the state of Florida. We want no CCP land purchases. And obviously, they're not going to do it directly. They will have shell companies. So we're going to have to have a system in place to scrutinize this. But why would we want them buying farmland? They had very little farmland in the United States even 10 years ago. Now they have significant holdings. Not as much in Florida, but you do have it in other parts of the country. Why would we want the CCP to own land near a military base or own critical infrastructure? So we're looking for a flat ban, and so we're going to work with the Florida legislature to get that done. Tucker, American policymakers for a generation have been empowering the CCP. They said it would end up working out. China would become a democracy. In fact, uh, this is a very serious threat to our country. Why would we want them to have even more influence over American society than they already do. Amen. In Virginia, Glenn Youngkin has killed the construction of a green energy plant uh, for Ford. Why? This is the Washington Free Beacon. While the plant was ostensibly owned by the Ford Motor Company, it would have been run by a Chinese company, Contemporary Amperex Technology, which would have owned the technology used in building the battery cells, the Virginia Mercury reported. Yumkin said Wednesday that he'd halted plans to build the factory. We welcome and encourage economic cooperation with international companies, the governor said, but made in Virginia cannot be a front for the Chinese Communist Party. Out west, where is it? Is it Montana, I think, or Wyoming? Uh, the Chinese have been buying up farmland near military installations. The Chinese uh, Chinese conglomerate owns Smithfield. Uh, you know the the bacon. You know, uh, listen. Full disclosure: a little bit of hypocrisy here, I guess. We buy a lot of bacon from Smithfield, but they are owned. They're an American company, but that American company is now owned by the Chinese. And, and there's actually uh, you can probably call it an oligopoly. There's a very few. I think three or four major pork producers globally now. McDonald's is suing them for antitrust, claiming that they collaborated, conspired to raise prices on McDonald's, which has put McDonald's in a position to give up offering the McRib, a national tragedy if ever there was one. Oh, the McRib. Mm, Nonetheless, I digress. Around the world, the Chinese are buying up properties, particularly where they think there are rare earth minerals. They've been buying up mines in South America. They have been structuring uh, loan deals to governments around the world. Sri Lanka is a great example where the Sri Lankan government was not able to meet the terms of the deal. There is some speculation the Chinese helped sabotage the Sri Lankan economy so that the Sri Lankan government could not meet 
their loan demands. And the Chinese, as a result, now have a military base in Sri Lanka. It was the the nation's airport. And now the Chinese get the harbor access and airport access for planes and for ships of military variety. The Chinese now control both ends of the Panama Canal because Jimmy Carter, history's greatest monster, gave up the Panama Canal in 1980. And now the Chinese control it. A strategic point for the American military is now controlled by the Chinese, thanks to Jimmy Carter. At least we now have some Republican governors who have stood up to the threat. But wait, there is more, and this is serious hypocrisy. Uh, Michael Sobolink flagged this for me. Uh, He's a uh, fellow at Americans for Prosperity. This is from Axios. While the final language hasn't been approved, it appears that Joe Biden's executive order on energy and batteries will focus more on quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and semiconductors, but will not include biotechnology or battery technology. This is related to domestic production. To boost electric car purchases, the White House has decided to exempt China's electric vehicle battery industry from export controls. It's an issue because there is a lot of documentary evidence that shows the Uyghurs have been enslaved by China. The Uyghur is a minority Muslim population on the far western edges of China, and the Chinese have placed them in concentration camps, and they are being used as slave labor to manufacture the electric batteries and harvest the materials for the electric batteries. And so Joe Biden has now signed an executive order to exempt the Chinese from inspection for slave labor when it comes to electric battery technology. Ties, this is from the New York Times, ties to potentially coercive labor practices could prove a problem for an industry that is heavily dependent on China. Once a new law bar in Xinjiang products goes into effect, there are red flags for forced labor in China's car battery supply chain. Now the president of the United States is issuing an executive order to exempt the Chinese for inspection regarding their electric batteries. So again, this, this goes, we're coddling China. The president is exempting them from examination of whether or not they are using slave labor, but most important of all, we're surrendering our technological production and capacity to a country that has strategic interests contrary to our own, is increasingly our enemy, not just our competitor, and uses slave labor. And everybody's turning a blind eye, including those people in Davos and their private jets. They don't care that the slaves don't sleep well at night so long as they sleep well at night. They don't care that China is engaged in human rights abuses because they believe the battery technology is more important than the people who are emitting carbon dioxide every time they exhale. We have a cult of people on the left who do not really care about human beings. 
in the name of caring about humanity. And it's not sustainable. It is a good thing, I think, that both Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin have stood up on this. Now, yeah, they're probably competitors in 2024. They probably wish to run against each other in 2024. They both have a donor base that they are building up. But it's good that they're both standing up against China. DeSantis, by the way, also standing up for the wokes. The state has rejected an African-American studies course in Florida. The, the governor pressured the state to reject an AP course in African-American studies. There was national outrage, but if you actually looked at the syllabus for the course, it turned out to be uh, about, here are the topics, black queer studies and post-racial racism and colorblindness. In other words, it was a, uh, it was a course premised on critical theory. One of the books featured a text from Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who has embraced critical race theory. In his book, Racism Without Racists, he says, whites talk, think, and account for the existence of racial inequality and makes clear that colorblind racism is as insidious now as ever. The book's second chapter is entitled, What is Systemic Racism? Coming to terms with how racism shapes all whites and non-whites and explains how all members of society participate in structural racism. Section four of the course would have been Black Queer Studies. Describes itself as, quote, this topic explores the concept of queer color critique grounded in black feminism and intersectionality as a black studies lens that shifts sexual studies towards racial analysis. This is where... This is this is where this Florida class wanted to head, and Ron DeSantis said no, and there's national media outrage calling him a racist. Do you want your kids subjected to this kind of woke garbage? Of course not. No, you don't. It's just remarkable that there's national outrage over this. Good for DeSantis and Youngkin standing up. Let me go to the phones. Let me squeeze in a couple of phone calls if I can. Lewis, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being patient. Eric, uh, this week, past week, you talked about uh, kids and their phones being separated from actual reality, and you know, kids commit the ultimate, multiple, you know, the horrible thing of suicide because they're so lonely. And I, I'm gonna tell you, my mom and dad split when I was about the age of 16, and uh, it, it really had an impact on me because my dad was never around. Um, you know, adults end up giving the shaft to the kid when, you know, their interest comes first. And then, you know, my my, my ex-wife and I, we divorced, and it had an effect on my kids. So my, my point is this. The dad is so important in the home. The dad is so well needed with, with the growth of the family. And when my kids were little, they used to cheer when I would come home. And after we after we divorced, I lost all that, you know. And, and we don't realize the impact that we have. We may turn off the technology, have spend a little time with each other, have a personality, and even if you're divorced, whatever the circumstance is, you need to be together in raising the kids, the mom and the dad together. And that, that's the only way to curb our society from this you know, individualism and a phone into your face when all you know is what the phone's doing 
and you don't have any idea what the person around you is, is, is saying. You know, okay, so I'm, I'm glad you said this, Lewis. Thank you for calling and sharing. Um, I try to treat this topic sensitively because there are, I have a lot of friends who are divorced. And some of them wound up in very happy second marriages. Some of them are on their third or fourth. Uh, some of them not remarried at all. Uh, almost all of them, with few exceptions, recognized there was a, a it, it impacted their kids a lot. What's so interesting about what Lewis is saying, honestly, though, is that I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who's a pastor. And he said, he has a sneaking suspicion that we're going to see the rate of divorce in this country decline because so many people are burying their heads in their phones. It's like they're they're divorced without ever being divorced. People live their own lives. And it's a really difficult subject. But I would encourage all of you, particularly dads who you often think you, you can phone it in, that it doesn't really matter that the kids need the mom. They need you too. They really do. I'm more and more mindful of that as my kids are teenagers. You know, I, I joke about this all the time. I mean it lovingly if my kids listen to this. I was always told that, you know, when your kids get to be teenagers, they're never going to talk to you. My kids can't stop talking, and there are days where I'm like, my gosh, how many times do I have to talk to my kid today? I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. I really genuinely love my kids, and I love talking to my kids, and I love that they love talking to me. But there are days where I get five, six phone calls. When are you coming home? What are you doing? How was your day? Let me tell you about my day. And then oftentimes it's the repetitiveness of the stories. I, I love that I have that relationship with my kids, particularly my daughter now at 17, uh, has not drawn inward. She's drawn outwards. It's kind of funny to watch my son now, 14. He's spending way more time, uh, used to always want to be clingy around us. And now he's kind of like, I'm going to go do my own thing. And it's neat to watch their personality shape. But I got to tell you, I'm more and more mindful that just being present in your kids' lives, uh, moms and dads both, particularly dads when your kids are teenagers and and being shaped, particularly if you have a daughter, just having a relationship with your daughter. The number of women I know who will admit they made mistakes in life, did things they shouldn't have done, and a lot of it they trace to not having a relationship with their father, it's it's kind of striking to me. Dads matter greatly. The weather outside might be frightful, but in your bed, you've got super soft bowl and branch sheets to sleep under. They'll keep you comfortable. They're just the perfect weight. Summer, winter, fall, spring, the perfect weight, and they get softer every wash. And right now, with the weather so cold outside, you want to just be snuggled up inside. They're the perfect sheets under which you and your loved one can snuggle. And right now, you can get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code ERIC at BowlinBranch.com. That's BowlinBranch, B-O-L-L. A-N-D-Branch.com. The promo code is Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Bullet Branch sheets are the perfect 100% organic cotton threads that get softer every wash. Not only do they get softer every wash, but they the drape across your body is just perfect. I really enjoy mine. We've got them now on multiple beds in the house. We've just kept buying them because they're so soft. And every wash, they get softer. And right now, get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, at BolandBranch.com. That's BolandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. The promo code ERIC. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, well, it looks like because they can't get Provy's scalp, the left has moved on. They now want Tony Dudgy's scalp. 
kid you not, uh, you know who Tony Dungy is. He was the uh, football coach for the Buccaneers and the Indianapolis uh, Colts, and uh, now they want him fired. They want him taken off the air because, well, he's a Christian, and they are upset that Tony Dungy has defended pro-lifers and referred to the gay quote-unquote lifestyle, him using the word lifestyle, offends them. And there's a pile on. It started at the left-wing nation. It's moved now to the sports writer at the Indianapolis Star and others. Uh, they they can't get Provy. Ivan Provorov, the hockey player for the Flyers, uh, the NHL is standing by him. And they've moved on. They're not answering questions. They've moved on. And so now they're trying to get Tony Dudgy fired. Uh, it's the horde of Mordor marching through, trying to destroy lives of people. And Dudgy hasn't really done anything. He's been doing Sunday night football. Yeah, by the way, he is a Christian. He, he is a strong Christian. He is pro-life. And because he is a pro-life Christian who has referred to the gay quote-unquote lifestyle they have decided he needs to be banned, needs to be barred, needs to be punished, needs to be taken off air. Uh, the Indianapolis Star writer says Tony Dungy is causing gay kids to commit suicide because of what he says. That That's no proof. There, no, no one has blamed Tony Dungy for anyone committing suicide except this guy says it's obvious his words are the sort of words that cause kids to kill themselves. The hate is is unhinged from these people. They are intolerant. It really does remind me of the Charlie Hebdo attacks where the Islamists stormed the building and cut off the heads of the and, and shot and killed the workers at Charlie Hebdo because they drew pictures of Muhammad. That was it. The leftists are not killing people. They're not chopping off heads or shooting them, but they are trying to destroy lives. They're not taking lives, just destroying lives because of word choices people use. Because of beliefs people have, it is a, it is the same sort of uh, violence without death, but destruction. A lot of destruction, a lot of hate. Tony Dungy doesn't hate anybody. He's by all accounts an extremely nice, compassionate soul. But because they disagree with him and don't like his faith, they've got to destroy him. They have to destroy Ivan Provorov. They failed at the one, so they want to try the other. Um, these people. They're on a slippery slope. Their night will be filled with terrors one day. My goodness. We'll be back. Nikki Haley running for president. Greetings. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to call in, I want to talk about a friend of mine. Now, there's a common vernacular where a lot of us use friends to actually mean acquaintances we know fairly well. So-and-so is a friend of mine. Not really. And in politics, it's very common to say friend when you really just mean people you know and get along with, but you're not really chummy. Um, I have a friend who is probably going to run for president. Her name is Nikki Haley. And she is an actual friend. She and Michael, her husband, are actual friends. I know her parents. I know her and her husband. Uh, back in 2009, I had my first gathering. It's here in Atlanta, Grand Hyatt 
in Atlanta and Buckhead. It's where we're going to have the next one this coming August. We'll have our next conference, and I hope she'll be there. She's never missed one. And in 2009, she was a state representative in South Carolina running for governor. And, and we brought her on stage, said she'd be great. She was Mark Stanford, you'll recall, went hiking on the Appalachian Trail. It's kind of an embarrassing meltdown midlife crisis for a man who is otherwise a very good guy and a great governor in South Carolina, a very good fiscal steward. And Haley kind of picked up the mantle. She was a protege of his, had been a, a strong supporter of transparency in government, uh, forced the South Carolina. So in South Carolina, you used to be able to have votes without recording who voted which way. They would take just audible votes with no roll call or they would suppress the roll calls and she forced through transparency so voters could see how their legislators were voting. She forced through uh, financial transparency. She was a great small government uh, governor who believed in giving incentives to attract business without giving away the house. And she wasn't getting traction. The California, or the California, the South Carolina Chamber of Commerce and others uh, were rallied against her. And I'll never forget, she called me in December 2009. She says, Eric, I got to have your help. I cannot raise money. They have shut me out. Uh, All of the major donors have, uh, they won't even return my phone calls. They're trying to cash starve my campaign. Is there any way to talk to the national grassroots? And I did a podcast conversation with her on Red State, and I started writing about her every day and raising money. And her team finally called me and says one of the worst things they ever saw was that Nikki Haley would sit in the back of her office every day just watch the money flooding in from all over the country. Just I got one from California. I got $1,000 from Washington State. I got $1,000 from Texas. And we raised her something like $100,000 in a week. And Sarah Palin took notice. And I connected the campaign to Sarah Palin's campaign, and and Sarah Palin came down and endorsed her in that in that race. And I stood on the steps of the state capitol in Columbia, South Carolina, and introduced Nikki Haley. She introduced Sarah Palin. She went on to become two-term governor of South Carolina. And two years left in her term, Donald Trump uh, picked her to be his UN ambassador. She's a a longtime friend. When I was in the hospital in 2016. She and Michael sent a plant that, sadly, I killed last year. I kept that plant around. I, my wife thought I was watering the plant. I thought my wife was watering the plant. It was too late. When we realized neither of us was watering the plant, it was too late. It died. I just, I, I love Nikki. Uh, she's a wonderful human being. She would be a fantastic presidential candidate. I am intrigued. I'm, I'm friends with Mike Pence. Not as good a friend as I am with Nikki Haley. But I know him, and, and he and his wife have been great prayer warriors for my family, my wife in particular, Nikki and Michael have as well. Uh, Nikki's parents are just salt-of-the-earth people. It's an amazing just, just story of how they came to the United States. She's a um, first-generation American. She's an American success story. She was with Brett Baer last night. You said after the holidays that you would look at it, consider it. You would read the tea leaves in your words. Uh, we are in the new year. How are those tea leaves looking? Are you going to run for president? Well, I'm not going to make an announcement here, but when you're looking at a run for president, you look at two things. You first look at, does the current situation push for new leadership? The second question is, 
am I that person that could be that new leader? Yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader. I was as governor. I took on a hurting state with double-digit unemployment, and we made it the beast of the southeast. As ambassador, um, you know, I took on the world when they tried to disrespect us, and I think I showed what I'm capable of at the United Nations. So do I think I could be that leader? Yes, but we are still working through things, and we'll figure it out. I've never lost a race. I said that then. I still say that now. I'm not going to lose now, but stay tuned. It sounds like you're close. It sounds, are we getting to the exploratory committee stage here? I think stay tuned. (laughs) Yes. I'm excited about the prospect of Nikki Haley running for office. And I will tell you, there's a very online right that doesn't care for Nikki Haley. They, They feel like she's been too opportunistic. But I will tell you, in the heartland, when people campaign for office, they like to have Nikki Haley come because she draws a crowd. She is extremely charismatic. She's just as nice as she could be. And she's also committed to great fiscal stewardship. She's not going to back down. She's not going to be bullied by people. And and, I, and again, not an endorsement. I'm intrigued by Ron DeSantis as well. People accuse me all the time of having a favorite here with Ron DeSantis. So today's your day to accuse me of having my favorite Nikki Haley. I believe my job is to sit on the sidelines and grant access to my microphone to all of them to have access to my audience for you to be able to have conversations with them, them with you through the microphone, and you decide. I'm not going to pick for you. I'm not going to make an endorsement in a presidential field. But I am intrigued by uh, Mike Pence. Mike Mike Pompeo, by the way, has a book coming out where he is uh, attacking Nikki Haley out of the gate. He seems to see her as a rival, as a threat. So one of the things that I, I dislike, but I don't have a better way of doing it, is when people talk about runs for president, they talk about lanes. Which lane will they run in? And it frustrates me because I think it oversimplifies the nuances of it, but it does to a degree make some sense. So Mike Pompeo will run in the foreign policy lane, whether he wants to or not. He's the secretary of state, uh, CIA director, intelligence chief. He's, He's in the foreign policy, national security lane, whether he wants to be or not. Mike Pence is kind of in the the leadership lane. He is in the, I am the heir of the Trump legacy. I was his vice president. I was a governor. I was in the Congress. Uh, It's my time. It's my turn. That's his lane. Christy Nome and Ron DeSantis will battle each other in the gubernatorial lane, but Nikki Haley can insert herself there because she was a two-term governor of South Carolina. Tim Scott will be the reformer, fresh-faced lane, the the bridge-building diverse candidate lane. Whether he wants to be or not, that's how the media will pin him. He's got to find his own lane. Otherwise, the media will just lock him in there. Donald Trump, if he comes in, he's going to be the I'm Trump. It's it's me. This is my party. It's my time again. And he's not going to get a pass. He'll have a lane to himself, but Pence will be battling him for that lane of leadership of the party. They're all going to find their lane. The donors will be interesting to see. Haley will have a donor base unique to herself, as will Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin. Youngkin will also be in the gubernatorial lane. Mike Pence and Glenn Youngkin and Ron DeSantis, I think, probably have the largest batch of independent donors. But this sounds like Nikki Haley's run for office, and if it is, good for her. Uh, I 
I don't have a bad word to say about Nikki Haley. Uh, this woman is a legit friend, and we're not done with her yet in leadership in this country, and I'm glad for that because she is just a a, a strong warrior for fiscal values, conservative values, social conservative values. She has battled. Um, she has seen great evil in her state. She has had to confront with the Dylan Roof murders at the church in Charleston, South Carolina. And she came out of that on top. And so good for her. Welcome to the race. I know she's saying she's not going to announce. She's not even going to announce an exploratory com- committee, but welcome into the arena again, Nikki Haley. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Now I want to hear what Mike has to say, waiting patiently on the phones. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Can you hear me, Eric? I can hear you. Great. Well, I enjoy your show, and I want to thank you particularly for uh, openly professing your faith on on the radio. Thank you. Um, I'm one of those people you were talking about. I had children late in life. Uh, I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old son, and I will soon be 70. Wow. All right, so so listen, uh, my call screeners listen right now, so tell Charlie how this is going to work for him. <laughs> well, you're 100% right. I mean, now at this point in my life, I wish I had started earlier. Uh, I had a friend of mine tell me one time many, many years ago that he thought being single was a selfish lifestyle, and it, that's what it really is. You're just being selfish, and I was selfish. Had a great time, had a couple of different careers, education, retired educator, and uh, sales. And uh, about 35, um, I really didn't think about kids, so about 35, it just kind of hit me one day. I was looking at a little kid, and I go, wow, that's, that's pretty neat. I kind of like that. But it was about 10 years later before I did anything about it, but it was... Uh, well, interesting journey. Um, I had my wife is 58, so she's quite a bit younger, and that helps out a lot. Uh, and she's a wonderful, sweet lady, and uh, takes care of everybody, and uh, does a great job. But we were dating it much younger, and we broke up. She ran off to Atlanta, got married, married some guy from her past, and about. Uh, Seven, eight years later, that didn't work out. She came back and we got married. So uh, that's when we got together and we had our first child, a son. He's great. He's uh, he's uh, in- engineering school in Marine Reserve. He's Fantastic. Very smart young man. Both well, my kids are much smarter than I ever was. Oh, look, my, my, my kids are running circles around me, and they're the most argumentative people. <laughs> Mike, listen, first, uh, thank you for calling in. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you had the, the joy of, of children, too, even though later in life uh, it is possible. I actually was having dinner last night with a buddy who is 51 and has a two-year-old. And, I look, I'm God bless you for, for having kids at any time. It, it it is it's it's just true. It's it's harder when you're older to have 
young kids. Um, I, I mean, honestly, I'm in my mid forties. Shut up, Philip. And there are some days I wake up and I've like, oh, there's something new in my body that hurts today. <laughs> I don't know if I'm in my mid forties and want to have a want to have a, a newborn baby. I kind of like to sleep at night. Um, now, if I'm like in my mid forties and, and have money and have like a twenty something wife and have a kid and we have a nanny, I, I guess good. But I I, I kind of like being hands on with with the kids. Um, it's just it, it's it, these are life choices you do have to think about. And oftentimes, in my experience with my friends, people don't start thinking about these sorts of things until it's you're you're getting kind of late to be thinking about them. Um, it, it's, it's not a judgment call. It's just a, there are consequences to actions and just trying to help people think deliberatively about those actions and those consequences as, as they try to make these life choices. So that being said, let's step out, see if I can squeeze in some phone calls here when we come back. Hello there. Welcome to the program. It is Eric Erickson here across the United States of America and beyond. According to my live stream numbers, I'm big in Singapore. <laughs> I assume there's got to be some VPN hub routed through there. I can't look at live stream numbers. And it's like, why do I have so many people listening in Singapore? I don't know. But if you're in Singapore, hi, uh, miss, miss being there. Beautiful country. Very expensive, though. Now, I would like to take a phone call from Doug. You're going to be up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, good. I've been to Singapore. I love it. It is great. But, uh, the, it is great. Uh, one of the, the reason I called is in reference to Nikki Haley. I used to have a team uh, that I would, I would work with. And one of my pet peeves would be when they would say, like, I think I can do that job. I, I got the word think out of their vocabulary. It's I know. I can do that job. And when I was listening to uh, Nikki on your show, the last two things she says, I think this and I think that. And just in my opinion, if she had said, to, I know this and I know that, it would have it resonated even more so with me. That's an interesting point. I, I, I had not considered that, but that's a very fair point. Um, and I guess to some degree there's some implied level of modesty in saying, I think I can do this as opposed to I know I exactly. can do this. Um, which, exactly. you know, I was with, with my buddy yesterday and, and he said that, uh, oh, I forget exactly how he, he, um, put it, but where, um, where ignorance is mutual confidence is king, that when you have two people who really don't know what they're talking about, the one who sounds the confident okay. is the one who's going to, going to be successful. And that's kind of the same thing as opposed to, I think I can do this. I know I can do this now. And she's got a record of being able to do it. So she does oh, know yeah. she can I'm do poor. it. But yeah, that's. I, I just want everybody else to go for it. Wise observation there, Doug, and that makes you the last and best caller of the week. <laughs> uh, no offense to all the other callers, not none at all. It, it is the the phraseology does matter on the campaign trail. It's like you remember, back before Bill Clinton, politicians would tend to point a finger at the camera, or they would do their whole hands like chopping the air with their hands. It was actually Bill Clinton who pioneered the uh, pattern of you make a fist and rest your thumb on top, and you're not pointing at people. It's your thumbs on top, shaking fists, but it looks it looks very disarming because it's it's more your thumbs. It was Bill Clinton's team that actually came up with that. There's a, a great documentary about Bill Clinton. Um, Oh, now its name escapes me. This is one of those days where everything I think of immediately the name escapes. But there's this old documentary of the 1992 campaign 
of Bill Clinton with it really highlighted the work George Stephanopoulos. People forget George Stephanopoulos was on his uh, campaign trail. Uh, he was on the campaign team. It was James Carville and it was um, Paul Begala. They were all there together. The War Room is the name of the documentary. I, I, for some reason, I thought that was it, and I thought I was wrong. Um, but it, it, it has a lot to talk about how Clinton won that race against George H.W. Bush, and they did so by being somewhat disarming. He wasn't wagging his finger. He was he was doing his hands with thumbs on, on the fist, with the thumbs in the elevated upward position, vertical position, and he never attacked George H.W. Bush's character, never made it about Bush's character. He's just uh, it damned him with faint praise that he served his country. He's been there a long time in Washington, D.C. It's time for someone from the heartland to come forward. And it really did work. Would have much preferred George H.W. Bush to be president at the time of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, which was happening in his presidency and the shakeup of the Soviet bloc nations as they were getting their freedom. And Bush, for a very long time, struggled with Bill Clinton and finally came to terms with him. And actually, they became dear, dear friends. George W. Bush and Bill Clinton have remained very good friends ever since, uh, like an extra brother. In fact, Clinton has talked about this, how, I mean, he beat George H.W. Bush. He was the bad guy who beat the family. And he actually became like he and George H.W. Bush became very, very close. Clinton also had a a friendship with Ronald Reagan. It was Ronald Reagan who uh, told Bill Clinton how he needed to salute when he came off Air Force One and, and Marine One to the how he needed to treat the Marines. It was it was Ronald Reagan who taught Clinton that. It was kind of neat to see these presidents so diametrically opposed in a lot of ways. And they kind of befriended each other. And nowadays we think of that, oh, that's just why, why you, you sell out, sell out. It's kind of reassuring. Um, all the presidents that I know of uh, never really got along with Jimmy Carter, which is kind of funny. They feel the same way with Trump to a degree. But Carter, there's a special loathing among some of the presidents for him. It's just funny stories behind the scenes you hear from these guys.